Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode three of Mongols and Mamluks called The Seventh Crusade, Triumph and Tragedy. In the last episode, we heard how the French king Louis IX organised the Seventh Crusade to attack Egypt, which was long seen by the Crusaders as pivotal to controlling the Middle East. He also hoped to create an alliance with the Mongols, who were threatening the Islamic states in the Middle East. So why did he hope that the Mongols would ally with Christian Europe against Islam? Well, this was because he and many Europeans genuinely thought the Mongols might convert to Christianity. Now, this sounds pretty unlikely, but it's not as crazy as it sounds, since in the 13th century, there was a remarkably successful branch of the Christian church that had grown independently in Asia, India, and even China, called the Nestorian Christians, or Church of the East. Now, the Nestorians originally traced their roots all the way back to Roman times, and their church was essentially the Christian church that had existed outside the Roman Empire and in the Persian Empire, and then survived the expansion of Islam. Now, the Nestorian Christians really were a major force at the time of the Crusades, but they were almost completely destroyed in the 14th and 15th centuries, and they simply don't exist today, which is why no one's really heard of them. But for Louis IX, he knew that many Mongols were in fact Nestorian Christians, and so it seemed entirely possible that they might all convert to Christianity. And another interesting aspect of the Nestorians is the legend in medieval Europe of Prester John. Now, you've heard him mentioned in many of our podcasts as this entirely fictitious but hugely influential figure for medieval Europeans, and he was meant to be a great Christian ruler somewhere out in the East. And again, I think this legend, although fictitious, has its roots with the Nestorian Christian church. And I think it makes a lot of sense that medieval Europeans who were vaguely aware of the Nestorian Christians, although there was no direct contact with them, thought that there might be a great Christian ruler somewhere out in Asia. And it just goes to show how the world in the Middle Ages was very local and not global, and how the Europeans had almost no contact at all with the Far East until the Mongol Empire was created. But let's get back to the Seventh Crusade, which really was the last major military effort by Western Europe to recover Jerusalem. And it's a story of triumph and tragedy, as you'll hear. So, as before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. On the 13th of May 1249, the Seventh Crusade was ready to sail from Cyprus to attack Egypt. A fleet of 120 large transports and many smaller vessels lay off Limassol in Cyprus, and the army began to embark. Unfortunately, a storm scattered the ships a few days later, when King Louis IX of France himself set sail on the 30th of May, only a quarter of his army sailed with him. The others made their way independently to the Egyptian coast. The royal squadron arrived off Damietta in Egypt on the 4th of June. 
Meanwhile, Sultan Ayub had spent the winter at Damascus, hoping that his troops would finish the conquest of Homs in Syria before the Frankish invasion began. He had first expected Louis to land in Syria, but when he realised that an attack was to be made on Egypt, he lifted the siege of Homs and himself hurried back to Cairo, ordering his Syrian armies to follow him. But he was an ill man in an advanced stage of tuberculosis and could no longer lead his men in person. He ordered his aged vizier, Fakhra al-Din, the friend of the German emperor, Frederick II, to take command of the army that was to oppose the crusader landing, and he sent stores of munitions to Damietta and garrisoned it with the tribesmen of the Banu Kinana, Bedouins famed for their courage, he installed himself at Ashmun Tama to the east of the main branch of the River Nile. Meanwhile, on board the Crusader's royal flagship, the Montjoie, the king's advisers begged him to wait until the rest of his transports arrived before attempting to disembark in Egypt. But he refused to delay. At dawn on the 5th of June, the landing began in the teeth of the enemy on the sands to the west of the river mouth. There was a fierce battle on the very edge of the sea, but the fearless discipline of the French soldiers with the king at their head and the gallantry of the knights of Outremer under John of Ebelin, Count of Jaffa, forced the Muslims back with heavy losses. At nightfall, Fakhra ad-Din drew off his men and retired over the bridge of boats to Damietta. Finding the population there in panic and the garrison wavering, he decided to evacuate the city. All the Muslim civilians fled with him, and the Banu Kinana followed them after setting fire to the bazaars, but neglecting his orders to destroy the bridge of boats. Next morning, the crusaders learnt from Christians who had remained in their homes that Damietta was undefended, Therefore, they marched triumphantly over the bridge and into the city. Their easy capture of Damietta astounded and delighted the crusaders, but for the moment they could not follow it up. The Nile floods were soon due to begin, and Louis IX, profiting from the bitter experience of the Fifth Crusade, refused to advance further until the river should go down. Besides, he was waiting for the arrival from France of reinforcements under his brother Alfonso, Count of Poitou. In the meantime, Damietta was transformed into a Frankish city. Once again, as in 1219, the great mosque became a cathedral and a bishop was installed. Buildings were allotted to the three military orders and the Genoese and Pisans were rewarded for their services by a market and a street apiece and the Venetians, repenting their hostility, begged successfully for a similar gift. The native Christians, Coptic monophysites, were treated with scrupulous justice by King Louis and welcomed his rule. The Queen, who had been sent to Acre with the other ladies of the Crusade when the army left Cyprus, was summoned to join the King. Louis also welcomed another distinguished, if impoverished, friend, Baldwin II, Emperor of Constantinople, whom he had known in Paris, where the Emperor had visited him in order to raise money by selling him relics of the passion that had survived 
survived the Crusaders' sack of the imperial capital. Throughout the summer months, Damietta was the capital of Outremer, but to the soldiers this inaction in the humid heat of the delta brought demoralisation, food began to run short, and there was disease in the camp. The loss of Damietta had shocked the Muslim world, but while the Crusaders hesitated, the dying Sultan took action. Like his father 30 years before, he offered to buy back Damietta with the cession of Jerusalem. The offer was rejected. King Louis still refused to treat with an infidel. Meanwhile, Ayub punished the generals responsible for the loss of Damietta. The emirs of the Banu Kinana were executed and Fakhra Adin was disgraced, along with the chief Mamluk commanders. The Mamluks wished to carry out a palace revolution, but Fakhra Adin dissuaded them and his loyalty restored him to the Sultan's favour. Troops were rushed up to Mansura, the town whose name means means victorious, built by Sultan al-Kamil on the site of his triumph over the Fifth Crusade. Ayub himself was carried there in his litter to organise the army. Bedouin guerrilla fighters were let loose on the countryside and would creep right up to the walls of Damietta, killing any crusader that strayed outside. King Louis was obliged to construct dikes and dig ditches to protect his camp. Meanwhile, the Nile waters went down at the end of October. About the same time, on the 24th of October, Louis's second brother, Alfonso of Poitou, arrived with reinforcements from France. It was time to advance on Cairo. Peter of Brittany, supported by the barons of Outremer, then suggested that it would be wiser to attack Alexandria. The Egyptians would be surprised by such a move. The Crusaders had enough ships to cross the branches of the Nile, and once they had taken Alexandria, they would control the whole Mediterranean coast of Egypt. The Sultan would then be forced to make terms. But the king's brother, Robert of Artois, passionately opposed such a project and the king agreed with him. Therefore, on the 20th of November, the Frankish army set out from Damietta along the southern road to Mansura. A strong garrison was left behind in the city with the queen and the patriarch of Jerusalem. Fortune seemed to favour King Louis, for Sultan Ayub was now on his deathbed. He died at Mansura three days later on the 23rd. He had been a grim, solitary man with nothing of the affability, the liberality or the love of learning of most of his family. His health was consistently poor, and it may be that his Sudanese blood set him consciously apart from the rest of his family, whose Kurdish descent was unimpaired. But he was an able ruler and the last great member of the great Ayubite dynasty. His death threatened the Muslims with disaster, for his only son, Tarun Shah, was far away acting as viceroy in the Jazeera. Egypt was saved by the widowed Sultana, the Armenian-born Shadjah Adur, confiding in the eunuch Jamal Adin Muzan, who controlled the palace and in Fakhra Adin, she concealed her husband's death and forged a document under his signature which appointed Turun Shah as heir and Fakhra Adin as viceroy during the Sultan's illness. When the news of Ayub's death eventually leaked out, the Sultana and Fakhra Adin were firmly in power and Turun Shah was on his way to Egypt. But the Crusaders were encouraged to hear of it. It seemed to them that this government of a woman and an aged general would soon collapse. They pressed on with their march 
towards Cairo. The road from Damietta was cut by numberless canals and branches of the Nile, of which the largest was the Bar as Sagia, which left the main river just below Mansur and ran past Ashmuntana to Lake Manzala, thus cutting off the so called island of Damietta. Fakra Adin kept the bulk of his forces behind the Bar as Sagia, but sent cavalry to harass the crusaders as they crossed each canal. None of these skirmishes was successful in holding up the crusader advance. King Louis proceeded slowly and cautiously. There was a battle near Faroskur on the 7th of December where the Egyptian cavalry was repulsed and the Templars, in defiance of the king's orders, insisted on pursuing the fugitives too far and had some difficulty in rejoining their comrades. On the 14th of December, the king reached Baramun and on the 21st, his army encamped on the banks of the Baras Segia, opposite to Mansura. For six weeks, the army's faced each other across the wide canal. An attempt by the Egyptian cavalry to cross into the island of Damietta, lower down, and attack the crusaders in the rear was beaten off near the camp by Charles of Anjou. Meanwhile, Louis ordered the construction of a dike to bridge the stream, but though he built covered galleries to protect the workmen, the Egyptian bombardment from the other bank, and in particular the use of Greek fire, was so formidable that the work was abandoned. Early in February 1250, a copt from Salamoun came to the king's camp and offered to reveal for 500 bezants the whereabouts of a ford across the Baraz Segir. On the 8th of February at dawn, the crusaders set out across the ford. The Duke of Burgundy was left with strong forces to maintain the camp, while King Louis travelled with the advancing army. His brother, Robert of Artois, led the vanguard with the Templars and the English contingent. He was given stern orders not to attack the Egyptians until the king gave permission. The difficult passage was successfully achieved, but it was slow. Once he was himself across the river with his men, the Count of Artois feared that unless he attacked the enemy at once the element of surprise would be lost. The Templars vainly reminded him of his instructions from the king, but when he insisted on advancing, they agreed to accompany the charge. His rashness was justified. The Egyptian camp, some two miles outside Mansura, was beginning its daily round, quite unsuspecting, when suddenly the Crusader cavalry thundered into its midst. Many of the Egyptians were slaughtered as they hurried to find their weapons. Others fled half-clad to the safety of Mansura. The general, Fakra Adin, had just left his bath and a valet was dyeing his beard with henna when he heard the uproar. Without waiting to don his armour, he leapt onto his horse and rode out into the battle. He found himself in the midst of some Templar knights who hacked him down. Robert of Artois was now master of the Egyptian camp. Once again, the Grand Master of the Temple begged him to wait until the king and the main army were over the ford and had joined him, and William of Salisbury also advised caution. But Robert was determined to capture Mansura and finish off the Egyptian army. After denouncing the Templars and the English as He rallied his men and charged once more into the fleeing mass of Egyptians, and once more the Templars and William felt obliged to follow him. Though Fakra Adin was dead, the Mamluk commanders managed to restore discipline among their troops, and the able 
Congress of the Rukhanadin Baibars took control. He stationed his men at crucial points within the town itself, then let the Crusader cavalry come pouring in through the open gate. When the Crusader knights, with the Templars close behind them, swept up to the very walls of the citadel, the Mamluks rushed out on them from the side streets. The Frankish horses could not easily turn in the narrow spaces and at once were thrown into confusion. A few knights escaped on foot to the banks of the Nile only to drown in its waters. A few others managed to extricate themselves from the town. The Templars fell fighting in the streets. Only five out of their 290 knights survived. Robert of Artois barricaded himself and his bodyguard in a house, but the Egyptians soon burst in and massacred them all. Among the knights that fell in the battle were the Earl of Salisbury and almost all his English followers, the Lord of Cousy and the Count of Brienne. Peter of Brittany had been with them in the vanguard and was severely wounded on the head, but he succeeded in riding back out of the town and hurried to warn the king. The crusading army had almost entirely crossed the Baraz Sagir. On hearing of the disaster, King Louis at once drew up his front line to meet an attack and meanwhile sent his engineers to make a bridge over the stream. A unit of crossbowmen had been left on the far side in order that they could, if necessary, cover the crossing and he was anxious for them to join him. As he expected, the victorious Mamluks soon charged out of the town towards the Crusaders. Louis firmly held back his men while the enemy poured arrows into their ranks. Then, as soon as the Mamluks' ammunition began to run short, he ordered a counterattack. His cavalry swept the Saracens back, but they soon reformed and charged again while detachments tried to hinder the building of the pontoon. The king himself was almost forced back into the canal, but another counterattack saved him. At last, towards sundown, the pontoon was finished and the bowmen crossed over. Their coming gave the king victory. The Egyptians retired again into Mansura, and Louis set up his camp on the spot where they had camped the night before. It was only then that he learnt from the acting Grand Master of the hospital that his brother had been killed. He broke down in tears. The Crusaders had been victorious, but it had been a costly victory. Had Robert of Artois not led his wild attack into Mansura, they might have felt strong enough to attempt to attack the town later, though they would have still been opposed by war engines better than their own. As it was, there was nothing to be done. The situation was ominously reminiscent of the Fifth Crusade, when the Christian army that had captured Damien was held up almost exactly at the same spot and was forced at last to retreat. Louis could not hope now for a better fate unless troubles at the Egyptian court might induce the government at Cairo to offer him acceptable terms. In the meantime, he fortified his camp and strengthened the pontoon. It was wise for three days later, on the 11th of February, the Egyptians attacked again. Reinforcements had arrived from the south and they were stronger than before. It was one of the fiercest battles that the men of Outremer could remember. Again and again the Mamluks charged, firing a cloud of arrows as they came. Again and again Louis restrained his men until it was time to counterattack. Charles of Anjou on the left wing and the Syrian and Cypriot barons in the left centre held their ground firmly. But the remnants of the Templars and the French nobles in the centre were wavering and the king himself had to rescue them in order not to lose contact with his left wing. The Grand Master William, who had lost an eye at Mansura, lost the other and died from it. 
At one moment, Alfonso Poitou, who was guarding the camp on the right wing, was encircled and was rescued by the cooks and the women camp followers. At last, the Muslims wearied and retired in good order back to the town. But it was now clear to King Louis that his crusade, which had been so brilliantly successful to begin with, was now in desperate difficulty. His casualties were too high to maintain the offensive, and now he was trapped facing an Egyptian army that was getting stronger by the day. The Seventh Crusade was facing defeat. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear the tragic story of what happened next to King Louis and the Seventh Crusade. (laughs) 